I've shared with you a very personal thing on a number of occasions, uh, which is my love for avocados. It's, it starts right here in my heart, and then again, the, uh, the taste buds, they're, they're the perfect food. And when most of you think avocados, you probably think guacamole dip or something, and maybe you're going to have some of that today at a, a party for the Super Bowl, but I got to tell you, the best way is just sliced, maybe a little salt, and enjoy them that way. But if you're going to have guacamole, there are things you need. You need lime juice, you need salt, and most of all, you need fresh cilantro. I thought maybe there'd be an amen there. Are you familiar with cilantro? It's one of the most delicious things there is. Oh, how I love cilantro. You've got to put it in your pico de gallo, in salsa, especially in, in guacamole. It has such a wonderful, strong taste, but somehow doesn't overpower the other tastes. And oh my goodness, it makes all the difference in the world for a good guacamole. And yet there are some including my own mother, who have, I don't know if it's a genetic defect or what, but they simply cannot stand the taste of cilantro. To them, it is awful. It's not that they taste what we normal people taste and don't like it. To hear them describe what it tastes like to them, it's entirely foreign to me. My mother says that cilantro tastes like soap to her. Like soap! She can't stand this stuff. I've also heard it described as tasting like old bubble gum. There's no overlap. The Venn diagram for me of cilantro and soap is like this. And yet for some, they taste it and go, oh, that's a horrible. They're tasting the same thing, but it hits them entirely differently. And St. Paul, in this passage in 2 Corinthians, says the gospel does sort of the same thing. It's the same gospel being proclaimed, but to some it is sweet. To some it smells and tastes wonderful. It is the very words of life, honey to their lips. To many it is nourishment, manna from heaven, and to others it is stinky and awful. It it is horrible and they would never knowingly, willingly taste it or even smell it. To fully grasp this, we've got to back up though a minute to, to verse 12 here. We're continuing our study in 2 Corinthians, now in chapter 2, verse 12. And Paul is shifting from talking about the past and what he's been up to and why he hasn't visited them to now talking about the present, what he's doing. And this is all building up, of course, to this defense of his own apostleship, that he is an apostle of the Lord when he has been getting a, a very passionate and coordinated attack on his apostleship there in Corinth by some false teachers while he has been away. And so this is what he says in verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. Now, we gave the background of this a few weeks ago, but a little refresher. Paul had said that he was going to visit them on his way to Macedonia. If you look at the last book in your Bible, the one called Maps, you'll find how that would have made sense. A little ocean voyage or ship voyage. Uh, And he decided not to because the report he heard was that there was this major sin, unrepentant sin, that was still an issue there in Corinth. And he knew that if he went there angry, he was just going to have a bad visit. And he didn't have it in him. So instead he wrote them what is called the severe letter or the letter of tears, which we don't have. 
We only have hints as to what was in it. And he sent it with Titus, one of his most trusted co-workers in the faith. And he said, go bring them this letter, and then you're going to bring me word after a time of whether it had its effect or not. They had agreed to meet up in Troas, which was a little sort of a central place for them to go. And he, he went there, and he didn't find Titus. Titus was not there at the appointed time. And so he did not hear what was going on with Corinth, and it was weighing heavily on him. To Paul, no news is not good news in this issue. He, he's, he's worried. And you might say, wait a minute, worry? Aren't we told in the Scriptures, be anxious about nothing but in everything? Trust God, give thanks. Aren't we told to cast all our cares upon Him? Isn't, isn't worry at worst a sin? Well, we have what's going on here is that Paul is feeling a weight. And it is a weight that has been ordained for him to feel. This is part of his job as an apostle to bear the weight of the cares and troubles of his people whom he serves. We'll we'll read later on in chapter 11 as he goes through this catalog of all the stuff he's endured as an apostle. He's, I I labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. He has concern and he feels the pressure. And you might say, how is that different from being anxious or worrying? How can he say uh, the, the most wooden translation, probably the most faithful translation, is my spirit did not find rest? Well, he is not going into the, crossing the line into the area of worry where it becomes a lack of faith where it becomes, you know, Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worries for itself. God's already there. I'm already there. Think about today. Well, Paul's thinking about today, and he is thinking about what can I do for the churches I serve. You see, when you get into worry and it starts to become sinful and it can even become an idol, you're starting to think and become preoccupied with stuff you cannot control. These things are in God's hands, and I'm sitting here going, oh, is God going to come through? That is worry. Here he's saying, what can I do? I'm feeling the weight. I'm feeling the urgency. And even though I'm here in Troas and things are going well, my soul is not finding rest. But he wants it to find rest. Worry, it actually can become an addiction. You don't even want rest. You just kind of want to sit there. You're miserable, but you sort of like it. And you want to worry and think and wring your hands. Well, Paul says, no, I will find rest. I'm going, to, I'm going to do the next thing, which is I'm going to follow what I assume was uh, Titus's uh, path, and I'm going to follow it backwards. And so I'm going to go to the place that he would have been before this. He hasn't gotten here yet. You know, we read in, in Genesis 8, after the flood, about how Noah would release the dove, and the dove would go, and it would find nowhere to rest, and then it would come back to him. And Noah would take it unto himself, back into the ark, and it would find rest there. Well, this is what Paul is wanting. He, I can't find, I gotta find how I can, how I can do something, and then I will trust God and find my rest in Him for the rest of this. And so when St. Peter tells us to cast our cares upon Him, you remember that from a few months ago, he assumes we will have cares. And there are things that we can do something about, and we should be motivated and to do them, and do them to the glory of God, and there are things we cannot control. And those we tell Him, these are for you. Take them from my shoulders. But there's the assumption we will have continual concerns, and that's okay. 
So he went on, and he went into Macedonia, we think probably to Philippi, and there he did finally connect with Titus. He got the report back of what was going on in Corinth. We'll get to what the content of that was. But then he said, all right, let me jot off a letter, which we are currently reading. This is getting kind of meta. And then he said, here, Titus, bring this back to them. And he sent them off. So it sounds like kind of a a win-win, right? Everybody's happy. But not everybody. Somebody didn't really win here. What about the people in Troas? Don't miss this little section, this little clause. When he says, I went to Troas, and though there was an open door to ministry. There was an open door, a wide open door for the gospel ministry. That means that Paul was there. He wasn't just looking around. You seen Titus? You seen Titus? You seen... He's, he can't not do ministry. So he's preaching. He's reasoning with them in the synagogues. He's in people's homes. And he's finding that people are receptive to the gospel. So they're hearing the gospel. They're responding. And it would have been great if Titus would have been there and they could have both stayed there and they could have both ministered for a time because they had this open door for ministry. And yet Paul says... I've got something else to do. And he leaves. Now, should Titus feel bad that he messed this all up? There may be people now who won't even hear the gospel, and if he had been on time, they might have. Is is there a sin on Paul's part here? Because, you know, we, we are going to pray this communion confession of sins prayer soon where we together say that we confess our sins, that we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves, we have not done all this, and, and by what we have done and what we have failed to do. Should Paul have stayed somehow and preached even though he had a job to do in connecting with Titus? And this is where the heavy yoke of the law is often placed around the necks of Christians who are supposedly freed from that. Jesus says, I took that heavy yoke that was crushing you and it crushed me on the cross. And in exchange, I give you my yoke, which is easy. My burden, which is light. Come to me and I'll give you rest. You'll find rest in me. And so, yes, we should do the good that we can for Christ. But you can't do everything. You, and I'm talking to to you, you can't do everything. There are good things you could do today that you won't do. On your way home, you're going to go, oh, I could do that, and I could do, and it's not necessarily a sin that you don't. Jesus, as he went from town to town, left before all the work was done, before all the people were healed, before everything had been taken care of. That was an act of faith. He knew there was a bigger thing going on than just this moment in this place. We'll read the scriptures that say we must be all things to all people, or at least Paul said he was all things to all people, and go, oh my goodness, that means i got to be like this guy's barber and this guy's uh, landscape specialist. And No, what he was saying in that passage is entirely different. If you're, if you're a Jew, I'll, I'll, I'll be a Jew to you. I won't do anything that will offend you because I want you to hear the gospel, not just see me breaking the ceremonial laws. If you're a Gentile, I'll eat pork chops with you. I don't care because pork chops are delicious and I want you to hear the gospel. And, and so there is, for Paul, for Christ, for us, a legitimate choosing of which of the good things that I could be doing will I do. I, I could go... And, and volunteer at a soup kitchen this afternoon, but there's another good thing, going to my daughter's Little League game. And it's not a sin to choose the one that would seem to the world to be the lesser of the two. So Paul is 
understanding that, that when he was sent out, and that's what apostle means, one sent out. When he was sent out, he was sent out as part of a larger force. He understands that he's on a mission here. And it's not indifference to the people of Troas that sends him away even while things are going well. Rather, he knows he's just one operative of many and he trusts that God has other people who will come and do the work. He doesn't let that be a, a source of laziness. Oh, I could. Ah, God's got other people. Oh, he could. No. no, he does what he can, but he doesn't then hang around his neck this crushing weight that says, oh, I didn't do enough. In Christ, he knows that all of God's promises are yes and amen, and he will work to the glory of God and trust God to be bigger than him. Even Jesus, who is God in the flesh, while he walked the earth, could be but one place at a time. And that is true for all of us as well. And, you know, probably even weighing on his mind more was the fact that he'd been to Troas before. He went to Troas, and that's where he had that vision, that dream of a man in Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia. And he said, oh, well, I just got here, but all right, I'll leave. Now he's back. Things are going, I got to leave again. And it could have become a source of great worry and strife in his mind. But he knew he had to meet Titus. His greatest responsibility in this moment was to the Corinthians. Those are the people that he was trying to bring from the brink of apostasy back into the bosom of the church. So Titus does not need to feel like, by not being there, he has screwed up God's plans. In fact, God will overrule all that by granting Paul a ministry right there in Troas after he leaves Corinth. Check out Acts 20 to read about that. The difference between going and well-going is what's at play here. We, we have the Great Commission. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. And we hear go. And we hear command. And we hear, oh, I'm right here now. I'm at work. Or I'm on my front lawn. Or I'm uh, out for a walk. I've got to go somewhere else. I've probably got to go somewhere bad. And I've got to go and bring the good news. Great, if that's what you're called to do. Missionaries go, they go to the other side of the world and bring it. But if you look at the original language, this is written down for us in Greek, the only command there is make disciples. The go part is what we call a participle. And, and what he's saying is you're going, you're always, you're going, you gotta go, you can't stay here, you're gonna go somewhere. And while going, make disciples. Wherever you go, you're on. Okay, and as you go, you're gonna go here when you could have gone here, make disciples. You're going to go here when you, when you could have stayed here for longer. Make disciples. Don't become paralyzed by analysis. And this idea that if you aren't there in that moment, no ministry will get done. Not even the greatest missionary we've ever known had that idea. But thanks be to God. Notice that. Verses 12 and 13 are about how he was just profoundly disturbed. And then he jumps right into, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us. He's leading you. He always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. What Paul's doing here is he's, he's giving them a picture that they're familiar with and using that as a metaphor for what he's doing as an apostle and what the, the church in general is in this world. He's picturing himself and his fellow Christians as part of a very particular kind of, of parade, a lavish Roman parade called a triumph. A triumph would happen when a general had had a huge victory. 
conquered a province or something enormous, done something that was worthy of, of public, public adulation, and there would be a magnificent procession through the streets, and everyone would come out and see this, this amazing spectacle honoring this person and what they had accomplished for Rome. In his Wars of the Jews, Josephus, this uh, first century uh, Jewish historian, describes in detail the triumph parade that took place after the Romans had defeated the Jews. And it looks like this. It begins with musicians. And they come and they're playing songs of triumph. Right? They're playing like you know, something that might be a, a John Williams score to a, a movie. It makes you feel like, wow, big things are happening. Then young men come behind them with animals that will be sacrificed to their pagan gods. And then carts loaded with the spoils taken from the enemy. Their best stuff. Their gold, their crowns, their, their royal jewels. Everything that they've taken is now on display to humiliate them and to glorify Rome. Followed by the kings and princes or generals uh, of the enemy that have been captured, those that have not been killed, and they are loaded down with chains so that they can barely walk. Immediately after that came the triumph chariot. There is the general himself, and he's decked out in like purple robes interwoven with gold, and there's pearls, and he's got a crown on his head, originally a laurel crown, and later gold. He's got ivory and and plates of gold on his chariot. And it's usually drawn by two white horses, although generals have gotten very creative in the past. And and Mark Antony, uh, he was drawn through his triumph parade by lions. Now, whatever your views on Rome, whatever your views on animal rights, that's a baller move to be pulled by lions. When Pompey triumphed over Africa, he was pulled by elephants. So understand the scope of this thing that we're talking about. People were throwing flowers and shouting praise, but then behind that would come not generals, not kings, just everyday people who had been chosen to be captured and put on display. Look at all the people. They're ours now. We we, we own them. We've defeated them. And instead of throwing flowers at them, they would pelt them with rocks and things. Then would come the Senate and the priests. And then finally, as they passed through the Arch of Triumph, uh, and headed to the, the capital, the animals were slain there, and there were sacrifices. And, and that's how it worked. Now, now, who are we in this story? We're, we're not the ones being celebrated. We're not the ones offering the sacrifices. We're not the Senate. We're not, you know who we are? I can, tell, I can show you in 1 Corinthians uh, for sure who Paul had in mind. We are those who have been captured. We are those who are being led now, having been captured, to show that we are subject to the great king, the one who has overcome us. Now, there are some who tried to kind of tweak the metaphor and say, no, we're not, we're not the captives. We're like captains. You know, we're, we're alongside. We're, we're soldiers in his army. And yet Christ is here described as having triumphed over us. The difference is, because of his grace... We then serve him and love him and fight under his banner and share in his victory because when he triumphed over us, he triumphed over our sin and the old self and he put it to death with him on the cross and then something new was born. And now as new creations bought by the blood of Jesus, we serve him willingly 
And yet, we're still seen by the world as being led foolishly, shamefully behind as prizes of war. In 1 Corinthians 4, he wrote this, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. He's talking about the same thing. Like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, and we are dishonored. And then in verse 13, he says, The world views us, the true apostles, as the scum of the earth. Paul saw himself as a trophy of God's power and victory in Christ. But he was okay with that. We think about being a trophy, and we think, ah, that's, that's kind of demeaning, like a, a trophy wife. I have to deal with this. You guys, I know I'm just arm candy for Aaron. <laughs> for, for Paul, he says, I am there as one that's been conquered, as one who follows along behind, as one who now lovingly submits and serves, and I am also his son. I have been brought into not just his army, but his family. Dr. Elford put it well when he said, Our only true triumphs are God's triumphs over us. His defeats of us are our only true victories. And you're going, that sounds backwards. It is. This whole kingdom thing's backwards. We're the first, our last, and the least, our greatest. And we win in him when we are defeated by him. Finally, we get to the smell. He says, Through us, he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That's that's very, very poetic and beautiful language to my ears. He goes on in verse 15, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. This is... This is something huge. You see, this, he's not leaving entirely the, the former metaphor. Part of the, the triumph procession was knowing it was getting close because you could smell it. Because it was incense everywhere. They'd scatter incense and, and it's almost like you could smell it first and then hear it and then see it. And in this picture, every sense then feels the power of Christ's gospel. And, and perhaps there's more to it even. Yes, it's the incense, but, but remember, at the end of this, there's, there's a sacrifice. And also, realize that during this time, these processions, all the temples were open, and all of them were in the process of offering uh, smoke and incense on their altars. And so the whole city would have this smell permeating it. And these words that he uses here, fragrance and aroma and odor, they're used in the, in the Greek Old Testament to refer to the smell of a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. And this is a sacrifice that, that in, in this procession in which we are captives and Christ is the great conqueror, there are a, there's a sacrifice and it's Christ's sacrifice that is pleasing to God, that God should look on him and pardon us. Further, there's, there's the sacrifice that Paul talks about when he says that he's a living sacrifice and that all of us should offer ourselves as living sacrifices pleasing to God. And yet the smell is not pleasing to everybody. It's the same gospel, and yet to some it is fragrant, and to some it is foul. To some it is life, to some it is death. 
Chrysostom says, as, as the light, though it blinds the weak, is for all that still light, and honey, though it tastes bitter to the sick, is in itself still sweet, so the gospel is of a sweet savor, though many perish through unbelief. Is essentially building on what he said in 1 Corinthians 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but is to us who are being saved the power of God. But he takes it a step further here. Because that message, that smell, that fragrance, it's coming from us. We manifest it. We, we are the aroma. You, you know, if, if anybody here ever tried to smoke while hiding that from their spouse? Impossible. You get home and one smell, you were smoking. If you've been somewhere where there's a smoking of meat going on or, or, or something delicious, people are like, oh, wow, you smell good. Or if you've, got, if, if you've, been, if you've been somewhere where, where there was a bad smell, it can permeate you. I love eating garlic. There's a restaurant in Grand Rapids called Sheshko. It's Middle Eastern. And they serve this bread that melts in your mouth with what I thought was garlic butter. I found out it's just ground up garlic and olive oil. And I will eat that stuff. I'll just eat it until I can't eat it anymore. And then it begins. I mean, and here's the thing. Brush your teeth as many times as you want. Garlic will actually come out your pores for days. They've shown that this happens. And, and people, oh, you are the, the, the stench of garlic. We cannot help if we are in Christ being the aroma of the gospel. And to some it smells good. And to some it smells awful. And know this, the difference is not in the aroma, but in the one experiencing it. To those who are perishing, it smells like death. To those who are being saved, it smells like sweet life. And when some hear the gospel from you and encounter you and, and, and get a whiff of what God has to offer in the way that you treat them and love them, and they hear the gospel message and they love the message and gladly accept the gospel that pleases God when they smell that that gospel message the aroma that is in Christ and in you permeating you and and they hate it and violently reject it and mock you for proclaiming it that does not please God any less it's in his spirit where the difference is unbinding the heart of man and applying the gospel to the heart of the sinner. So, so when you have an open door like Paul did here and everyone's responding, you might be tempted to say, oh, I smell good. You smell the same. And when you go over here and you find, oh, nobody's, nobody's, you know, there, there are stories of people who've had huge successes for 10 or 15 years in missions and then go to another mission field and the rest of their lives. It's just nothing. It's barren. And those who recognize the power of God in their ministry know it's not necessarily them doing anything wrong. Our job is simply to be smelly. That's it. While going, be smelly. Well, while you are going, you show the world that Jesus loves them. You tell the world that Christ died on the cross. And notice, don't, don't try and take that fake St. Francis quote and get out of talking about Jesus. Preach the gospel when necessary. Use words. He talks about us being the fragrance, spreading the knowledge of God. In order to do that, you've got to open your mouth. And it better be in keeping with what your life is saying. 
while going, be the aroma. We might, you know, we worried. We might, we might be anxious about this. I don't know if someone's going to accept. Am I putting it the right way? Do I have the answers to the questions? Do I know what I'm doing? Maybe they're going to reject it, and it'll be my fault. Don't be anxious. Cast your cares upon Him. But yeah, feel that urgency. Recognize that your spirit will not find peace until you yourself are bringing the aroma of Christ, spreading the knowledge of the gospel wherever you go, while going. There are those who are perishing. There are those who are being saved. Those are the only two categories he allows for. That's, that's heavy stuff. And he follows it up by saying, who is, who is qualified for this? Who is sufficient for these things? He's going to answer that question fully next week, so put a pin in that. But for now, with this last verse, verse 17, he says, let me at least just say what I'm not doing before I tell you what I am doing. We are not like so many peddlers of God's word But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Who is sufficient? Well, we are not like those who claim to be sufficient, and yet they are doing things for their own purposes. Now, many new translations say things like this, peddling the gospel or or preaching the gospel for a prophet or something. The King James talks about corrupting God's word. This, I think, is what's really happening here. The word that he uses, it comes from the word for a tavern keeper, a barkeep. And in their world, tavern keepers, just as tax collectors were known for skimming off the top, tavern keepers were notorious for mixing in worthless liquors with their fine wines in order to stretch things out. So they could increase the quantity while diminishing the quality because they only cared about the bottom line at the end of the day. This just comes up in Isaiah 1 as a metaphor. Your, your wine is mixed with water, meaning that false prophets and corrupt priests were adulterating the word of God by mixing in human teaching and philosophies. And in the same way, these false apostles in Corinth were receiving the doctrine that Paul had preached, corrupting it, mingling it with their own feel-good, human-centered philosophies, and explaining it all away, dulling the sharp edge of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that it would accommodate the preferences of the carnal minds of people. And there are warnings after warnings after warning in the New Testament that in the last days that will happen more and more and reach a fever pitch. And darned if every time I turn on the TV, I don't see that happening with churches and preachers. There is an insincerity here. He's he's contrasting himself as the minority with, quote, the many who preach Christ insincerely for the wrong reason, from the wrong motive, and who are not qualified to the task. He's going to show that he is qualified, preaching from the right motives, for the right reason to lift up Christ. In other words, he says he preaches with sincerity. That he and Titus and the rest of them are men of sincerity, commissioned by God. They receive the doctrine pure from God and keep it pure and deliver it in its purity to all of mankind. And they know that if they keep it in its purity and they keep it as concentrated as they received it, some people are going to go, oh, what died in here? And some are going to say, that smells like life. That's what happens. We are salt and light to the world. We are the light of the world. And if we dim the light so we don't hurt the eyes of those who like darkness, we lose our 
our potency and we lose the, the qualification to be the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. In the same way, if we, if we water down the wine, if we, if we mix in a little bit so that the smell will be less. You ever walk by Bath and Body Works in the mall and you're like, I'm feeling great, I'm feeling fine, I'm feeling, oh, Bath and Body, oh, I have a headache. It's so strong. How do you work there? I would die. I would die. There's a tendency to say, hey, this is just going to just give people a headache. It's, it's going to be too much. Dial it back. He says, no, I'm going to love all the more. I'm going to forgive all the more. And when I proclaim the gospel, it's going to be the real stuff, not watered down wine. It's not going to be the kind of stuff they're telling you that's all about winning the day. It's not going to be stuff that makes you feel good necessarily right away. It's going to be something that shows you your need for a Savior. And when you come to the cross, you will find a Savior. And I'll tell you what, sometimes that smells bad even to a believer. We want to think, oh, I've got it all together. And then you hear the gospel and it does its work on you all over again. You say, oh my goodness, I'm saved, but I've, I've lost track and lost sight of the fact that I am a sinner and I need to die to myself. The gospel is at work in us. Let's not water it down. Let's not say, hey, we want it to smell nice for everybody. Let's recognize that God is at work when the gospel is preached. Cilantro, you know, it's always delicious. But some people don't like that. Don't, don't give up. People can come around. People can, I've known people who've come around on cilantro. I'll tell you what, people will come around on the gospel when the Holy Spirit breaks that heart of stone and makes it into a heart of flesh. And they hear that for the, I, I've preached at the mission again and again and again and again for 11 some odd years now. And I've had people who've heard the gospel in that same place 50 times, 100 times, suddenly have it connected with them. We do not stop. Well going. Be smelly. That's the word today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you would trust us to be the aroma of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, to spread the knowledge of the gospel with us while we're going. Lord, may we remember, like Paul knew, that it's not on our shoulders, that we need not worry and fret if we're not able to do everything that we possibly could. Lord, may we remember that if we simply serve you and work to your glory, that you are doing the great work. Lord, may we simply be the aroma, be the fragrance, and trust you to do the rest. And Lord, we we know that when we do that, we will not worry or be anxious. In your holy name we pray. Amen.